Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey there, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And tonight we're talking to a congressman that you may not have heard of before 2017, but who now is one of the most recognizable Democrats in the House. That's right. We recently sat down with L.A. Congressman Adam Schiff. He's chair of the House Intelligence Committee and has been a steady and consistent critic of the president. We've never actually seen him lose his cool, though. It's a... No, he's very chill. Yes. Very, very, uh, yeah, very... What does Trump call him? Pencil neck. For some... yeah, we, he talks with us. Talk he talks with us that, about yeah. that. But no, he's very, uh, very, very even keeled. Definitely. So, um, but interesting, I think, because we hear so much from him about like what you know about the Russia investigation, House intelligence. It was kind of fun to talk to him a little bit more about his life, and yeah, I think he had stuff. some fun too. He did. But first, Scott, let's talk about some other Democrats you might have heard of. I'm talking Biden, Kamala, Warren, Bernie, and uh, like 20 Rudy, others Rudy who Judge. maybe aren't getting as much love. We had a new poll out Thursday. Um, this is looking at how California voters feel about this very crowded field. And Scott, you've been reporting it out. What would what, what, what they find? Yeah, so this is a Berkeley IGS poll. Mark D. Camillo, formerly of the field poll, a uh, poll of about 2,100 likely voters in California. And this was taken just after the California State Democratic Party convention. Which we were at. Which we were at. And I I think actually these poll results reflect exactly what we saw, Marisa, which is, of course, Biden wasn't there, yeah. uh, but he was number one in this poll with about 22 percent of support. And then the the, the next four were uh, those who we thought did really well. Uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg in that order. Uh, and it's really shown, I think, a big uptick in support for Elizabeth Warren, which we saw at the convention. Uh, She's at 18% in this poll. And nobody, I mean, I think it's interesting, though, like Biden obviously is ahead of the pack, but he's not by 10 points, right? And I think that's telling, too. Totally. Yeah. He's he's at 22, Warren's at 18, then 17 for Sanders. You know, Kamala Harris does well, but not spectacular. She's at like 13%. And, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I've always felt that, uh, you know, a lot of uh, Biden support was name ID. He's very Mm -hmm. well known. He's comfortable for a lot of voters. Uh, He does very well with the oldest voters, 50 and up, with moderate to conservative voters, as we would expect. But, you know, we're seeing this energy in the party, not really with Joe Biden. It's with uh, Elizabeth Warren. It's with uh, 
Buttigieg yeah. uh, as well. You see a lot of enthusiasm around the country for him. So you do see some movement now in the polls, and in particular, Elizabeth Warren with all of her plans for every conceivable she issue. She's got a plan for that She's and everything else. She's got a plan else. for coming up in the polls, apparently. Yeah, apparently so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, too, because, uh, you know, I think that we talked about before that convention, you know, how the delegates tend to be skewing so far to the left. Um, and it is kind of fascinating that you are seeing the broader Democratic electorate, at least according to this one poll, kind of, you know, spread their love around as well. Um, I would say one thing, you know, when you look at the most liberal voters, it's really Elizabeth Warren with 32 percent and then Bernie Sanders with 21. So she's clearly pulling she's support taken, yeah. from Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Which I think, you know, is sort of an interesting a dynamic we've seen starting to shape up anyway. Um, I think if you listen to her talk, I mean, clearly they've both taken some aim at Biden and everybody sort of, you know, does view him as the front runner and the person to beat. I also find it interesting sort of, you know, there's a lot of talk and we've talked about a lot on the show about electability and whether that should be a consideration and what, what that means. Um and, you know, Biden is the only one who is really making his primary campaign about Trump. And I think that that is something that a lot of the other candidates, you know, are worried about, that they don't want the Democrats to sort of have 2016 redux. Right. But when you look at this poll and other polls, the most important thing, as you say, to Democratic voters is who can beat right. Trump. And in that regard, it does seem that Joe Biden has there's some fact behind that. There's been a series of polls out this week showing him leading Trump in Texas mm-hmm. and other states, uh, all the battleground states. Uh, But, you know, that said, so have some of the other candidates have also been ahead of Trump. Yeah. And I mean, it's early yet, right? We we keep saying this, but it's I think it's worth mentioning the first debates are going to be in two weeks. Um, We'll see another round in July. And then September, DNC is going to bump up sort of their requirements. So it'll be a little tougher, Tougher. maybe a smaller debate stage. Um, But we did see just this week, the DNC announced who's in. And it's basically everyone you've heard of, I would say, if you're not. And and maybe one or two that you haven't. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, you know, we didn't mention Eric Swalwell, the East Bay congressman. This poll is not good news for him. He's basically at they rounded up to one percent when you put people's first (laughs) and second choice. Uh, So he's, uh, you know, hoping, I think, to break out in Iowa, which is where he's from. And in the debates, I mean, I think a lot of these lower tier candidates are really hoping that they can maybe have that moment that goes viral and that might actually give them some, you know, some wind in their sails. Um, But, you know, I think that's going to be tough given that it's two nights of debates in June and it's going to be crowded even with splitting it up. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, some of these candidates like Beto O'Rourke, Steve Bullock from Montana. There's going to be a lot of pressure on them to get out. John Hickenlooper in Colorado, get out and run for the U.S. Senate because some of the senators in those states are vulnerable. Uh, and let's face it, even if a Democrat wins the White House without the Senate, there's not a lot you can do. Yeah. Well, we'll see what Swalwell does, too, about his congressional seat. He's got about, what, five months to <laughs> a little decide? More. Yeah, we'll yeah. See, yeah. All right. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, you'll hear our recent conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? Its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. 
Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer, and we are thrilled to welcome Congressman Adam Schiff to The Breakdown. Thanks for being here. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we we try to make the show a little lighter, and I thought we would start by asking you about your kids um, and how they're feeling about your newfound rock star status in the Democratic Party. Um, are they impressed at all? Well, I don't know. Uh, I will tell you this. I was walking uh, in the Upper West Side of New York with my daughter, who's doing an internship there, and... Uh, People were stopping me, and I expressed surprise that uh, people were stopping me. And, you know, I think she's used to being the center of attention in our family, was a little <laughs> put off by this, uh, in, in particular when somebody asked uh, her to hold their beer while they took a photo with me, and <laughs> she said, what am I now, the beer holder? Literally, uh, hold, yeah. literally hold my beer. <laughs> so I said, Alexa, I'm just surprised people recognize me. I'm in blue jeans, I've got sunglasses on, and she says, well, you know, Dad, it's the pencil neck. So Trump's that tells you, you, yes, uh, that tells you that my, keeps, my kids keep me grounded. <laughs> so you have a couple kids, and how old are they? They're, uh, they're adults, more or less, right? Um, my daughter is in college. She's 20, and my son is 16. He's in high school. Yeah, and uh, they, you grew up on the East Coast, right? I think you're from Massachusetts. I'm from Boston originally. And uh, I think your dad was Republican. Your mom was Democrat. Is that uh, right? Other way around. Other way around. Yes, my mother was from a long line of Republicans. Uh, my father is lifelong Democrat from a long line of Democrats. Was that like an issue growing up? Did, did they talk politics in it's the a house? It's a different era too, right? Um, you know, we talked politics. It wasn't an issue in the house. Um, but uh, I do remember that one thing they agreed on was Franklin Roosevelt. They both really admired Franklin Roosevelt. And I grew up thinking that both parties agreed on Franklin Roosevelt, uh, only to learn uh, quite uh, a bit later that that was not the case. Uh, in fact, I remember when I was first running for office, uh, meeting with a Glendale council member named Ginger Bremberg, who was very conservative and kind of a spitfire. Uh, and uh, I was talking about Roosevelt. Someone had just told me that they had voted for Roosevelt and they had voted for me in the same lifetime. And I thought this was a very cool, if very tenuous connection with history. Uh, and Ginger said to me, I wouldn't tell that story in Glendale. Uh, there are people here who are still pissed off at the Roosevelts. And I, then I realized, I guess it's not quite bipartisan after yeah. all. So when did you decide you were a Democrat? You know, I think growing up in Boston, um, you can't help but be, uh, you know, drawn into the kind of Kennedy mystique um, and the idea that... Um, you should not ask what your country could do for you, but what you can do for your country. There was a real idealism about uh, politics and public service uh, around the Kennedys. And I, I think growing up in that uh, atmosphere, um, it was kind of in the ether. So 
uh, I don't remember ever consciously having to make a decision about it. You didn't have to, like, come out to your mom. <laughs> no, I didn't. <laughs> you, and, uh, uh, you know, later in life, uh, my mother, uh, uh, I think, drifted away from the Republican Party, or the party drifted away from her. Uh, but I'll tell you, she was the very best. She's passed now, but she was the very best campaigner I ever had. No one can turn down a candidate's mother, and particularly not my mother, who was very good uh, on the phone. Just a very good uh, salesperson generally. Uh, she was a, a realtor for many years. And uh, my father loves to tell the story, probably only slightly apocryphal, of walking precincts with my mother, and a man came to the door, and he was wearing black, and he said, this is really not a good time. I'm sorry, but I just came from my brother's funeral. Uh, and my father said, your mother would not let him go until he committed to voting for you and committed to taking a yard sign. Uh, and my father said, do you know how he got, uh, your mother got him to commit to the yard sign? And I said, how? Uh, and my father said, she told him, your brother, you know, he would have wanted it that way. I don't know if it's a completely true story, but it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. You came out to California to go to Stanford, right? And I think your Dartmouth was in the family. There had, you had some uh, family members maybe who went there. Was there a pull for you to stay on the East Coast from, by your family? Uh, you know, we actually had come out already. Uh, my father was in what he called the rag business, the schmata business. Uh, and he was transferred out west, so the family moved out west uh, to Arizona for a couple years and then to the Bay Area. Uh, so I lived in Alamo, Danville, up through college, uh, up through high school, and then went to college at Stanford. We did have a lot of Dartmouth in the family, um, but I was... Uh, uh, I think only looked at a few colleges, and I didn't even look at Dartmouth for whatever reason. So, I mean, did you feel, you know, you ended up going to Harvard Law School, but then you came back to the West Coast. I mean, was there something about California that kind of drew you back after, you know, spending a good portion of your life in Boston? Yes, I thought when I went back to law school that I was an Easterner coming home. But I'd evidently forgotten what it was like on the East Coast because after six months of perpetually cold, rainy, dreary weather, I didn't even mind the snow. It was just the perpetual muck. Um, I was eager to get back to California as soon as I graduated. And what drew you to law? I, you know, I was really torn in college. I was a pre-med and a political science major. And I went back and forth between what I wanted to do with my life and waited until the very last minute. Uh, and I decided I thought a career in medicine would be very satisfying, but I wasn't all that excited about it. Uh, I was more interested in uh, you know, what was going on in the world and public policy. Um, and I remember when I broke the news to my folks because there's, I'd gotten into medical school and there's nothing um, really more damaging you can do than take my son, the doctor, away from Jewish <laughs> parents when you're that close. Uh, and uh, I remember when I told them that I had made the decision to go to law school, they took the news calmly and asked me why. And I said, well, you know, I think medicine would be, would be very satisfying. But um, when I pick up Time magazine, I never flip to the what's new in the medicine section. I want to know what's going on around the world and, and what's happening. And it didn't occur to me until I was midway through my first year in law school that I never flipped to the what's new in the law section either. <laughs> but uh, I 
feel very lucky that I chose the path I did, although I have so many friends from college who are doctors now because we were pre-meds together. They're very happy and have wonderful careers, so I, I think it was a good good decision either way. Well, it seems like, yeah, you did find your calling in a way. I mean, you became a prosecutor, I think, fairly quickly out of law school. Um, I guess to start, like, why, why a prosecutor? Why go into that? I mean, law is one of those things you can kind of take a million directions. When I was in law school, I had a litigation workshop from that was taught by two assistant U.S. attorneys from Los Angeles. And in the course of teaching the workshop, they talked about their cases and what it was like and being in the courtroom. And uh, it seemed like an ideal job. And uh, so I came out to L.A. to clerk for a judge. And then when I was a clerk, I had the chance of sitting in the courtroom every day and watching these uh, prosecutors uh, and tr- watch them try cases and they were really good lawyers and uh, I thought boy that's what I want to do and um, I did a stint in private practice and then uh, went to the U.S. Attorney's Office a short time later and uh, loved it there. I want to ask you about a pretty high profile case uh, that you prosecuted. It was the case of an FBI agent who was accused of espionage uh, and he had gotten into Russians, a relationship with a Russian, a Russian <laughs> spy named Svetlana, um, and he was prosecuted and sent to prison for, I think, about 10 years, perhaps. Uh, what did you learn from that case about Russian spies <laughs> and about Russian influence, and how did that shape the way you think about what you're doing now? Well, it was my first real exposure to uh, Russian tradecraft, um, how they target people, um, how they get people to cooperate with them uh, in small steps, uh, the incentives they used. Uh, that was essentially a sex for secrets case, although it had also involved money. Um, but uh, they, they knew their targeting well. And uh, it also demonstrated how they use assets in other country, people who are not you know, KGB agents, but they're uh, locals that can be used or manipulated uh, and that was the case uh, with Svetlana and her husband, Nikolay. Um, I also learned a lot about the FBI. Uh, and ironically, even though this was an FBI agent gone bad, and no FBI agent had ever been indicted for espionage up until that point, I probably worked with dozens and dozens, maybe 100 FBI agents in the investigation and prosecution of the case. And it uh, gave me a real respect for the professionalism of the bureau agents they were just such a cut above uh, and they were you know quite determined to uh, not sweep anything under the rug but you know prosecute this guy that had gone bad to the full extent of the law uh, and it, it I think created in me a lifelong appreciation for just the level of professionalism at the bureau. Does it seem ironic to you that now you're as chair of the House Intelligence Committee overseeing this investigation into Russian interference in our election? I mean, did, at what point did you think, wow, you know, this is coming full circle? Well, it, it, it is. Uh, it does feel like my life is repeating itself. Um, and it's also... Uh, you know, I, I don't know if this is an echo of the past. Um, the Miller case obviously involved an FBI agent going bad. But it also, from my point of view, involved dozens of agents that were doing really good work to bring him to justice. Uh, you know, flash forward, we again have the Russians um, engaged in spycraft in this country. Uh, you have the FBI, I think, uh, doing very good and important work. But now you have the FBI being attacked by our own attorney general, by the president of the United States. 
Um, and to see the damage that the President and Attorney General are doing to the men and women of the FBI and to other institutions, uh, it's, I think it's dangerous, I think it's heartbreaking, um, and I think it is uh, um, a completely uh, partisan exercise uh, uh, to protect the President at all costs, and the costs here are really quite tremendous. Do you feel at all like, you know, I think for people who support the president, they feel that Democrats have sort of taken this and and are running it into the ground. And, you know, there's something in um, courtrooms that that critics of prosecutors see sometimes, like confirmation bias, tunnel vision, this idea that once you have an idea that somebody is guilty of something, you, you can't be dissuaded. Do you, I don't know, think about that, worry about that in terms of how something that you did, you know, at a much younger time in your career could be influencing the way you approach something now? No, I mean, early in my career, yes, I, uh, I got to see how the Russians employ their tradecraft and their spycraft. Uh, do I think they're still at it? Yes, I do. But I think there's very good reason for that. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of disagreement uh, between the parties of, of uh, that, although the president continues to call this a hoax. Um, but uh, I think the dynamic now is not so much uh, that sort of conviction bias uh, as it is one party viewing its responsibility as defending the president at all costs. Um, you can imagine if we were talking about a different president, a Democratic president, who was saying that North Korean missile launches are fine, that they don't violate uh, UN resolutions, uh, that he loved uh, the North Korean dictator, or a Democratic president who said they agreed with Vladimir Putin over his own intelligence agencies, or attacked the men and women of the FBI, um, how the Republicans would be um, uh, withering in their assault on a president like that, but instead they are um, demonstrating the most complete and abject obsequiousness towards this president. Uh, they're acting like they're members of the Giuliani law firm. And uh, I think that really has our democracy in peril. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer with Marisa Lagos, and our guest is Congressman Adam Schiff, who chairs the House Intelligence Committee and has been a very high-profile uh, media personality, really, since all of this happened and a key spokesperson on this. You know, as you said, you know, Republicans publicly are very much in line with the president. Very few have criticized him throughout all of this. And I'm wondering, how often do Republicans come into your office at the end of the day or in the morning and just say, uh, you know, kind of kind of let off steam and tell you how they really feel? That's different from what we hear publicly. You know, there are certainly any number of Republicans who will tell you their private misgivings about the president, their concerns with what he's doing to the party, to the country. Uh, I've had even senior Republicans who would pass me in the hall and whisper, keep doing what you're doing. Um, but I'm a little exhausted by the private misgivings. Um, people need to speak out and be heard. Uh, you know, Justin Amash is the only one thus far who has had the courage to say anything that deviates from the party, not even the party line. The party line doesn't exist anymore for the GOP. It's all the president's line. Um, and they do more than look the other way. Uh, they, like the um, Republican leader in the House, Kevin McCarthy, um, in an act which I think symbolizes just uh, how uh, debased that party has become, uh, separates the starburst flavors the president likes from the ones he doesn't like. 
Um, that's a perfect symbolic demonstration of how much Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans have debased themselves to this president. Wait, can we back up a little? So wait, like he brings him Starburst, but like only the flavors he likes? Uh, apparently, uh, this came out. <laughs> I've never heard this, this came out a year or two ago when he learned that the president only liked certain flavors, so he would call out the flavors that the president didn't like. Um, you know, it, it seems like. Does Pelosi ever do that for you? <laughs> no, I can assure you. It's only it's chocolate. In fact, anyway. I will tell you a story yeah. about the speaker uh, along those lines, uh, which is when my kids were very young. I think my daughter was only uh, three or four at the time. We were at the Capitol, and we ran into then uh, Whip Pelosi. Uh, and I introduced her to our Whip, and I said to my daughter um, that uh, Nancy had a Whip, and if you didn't do what she asked, <laughs> she would use it. And Nancy, who's so wonderful with kids, took my daughter's hands, and she says, don't tell her that, don't tell her that. And then she says to my daughter, it's a candy whip. It's a candy whip. <laughs> and I said to my daughter, it is not a candy whip. <laughs> Chocolate, maybe. And she knows how to whip folks, Yeah. Too. So speaking of this sort of breakdown between the parties, you know, the House Intelligence Committee, which you chair, has long sort of been known as a bipartisan and one of the rare bipartisan committees that the staff work together. Um, and we saw very publicly about two years ago, you and, and Devin Nunes, who was then the chair, you were vice chair, um, have a pretty public breakdown of your relationship. But before that, you guys actually had a, a decent relationship, as I understand it. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because Nunes, you know, is a fairly controversial figure sort of outside of the Trump stuff. Well, you know, it's true. Before the Russia investigation began, uh, we worked together very well on a whole host of issues. And where we parted company, and it was a serious rupture, was the midnight run. Uh, which, to remind your listeners, uh, was an event early on in the Trump administration when the president was accusing uh, the Obama campaign of spying on him. And uh, Nunes uh, was in a car in the middle of the night with his staff, got out of the car, got into an Uber, went to an undisclosed location to review classified information, which he then announced at a press conference the next day that he had received and reviewed from this undisclosed location that he had then to present to the White House and with such, such urgency. Um, well, we would learn in a matter of only days because it was a complete Keystone Copper operation that the undisclosed location he went to in the middle of the night was the White House. So we went to present to the White House what he had gotten from the White House, and it was a complete charade. Now, up until that point, we were doing a bipartisan investigation of Russian interference and the Russian links with the Trump campaign. Well. That obviously exploded his credibility and, and that of our investigation, and so I asked him to step down, and he did. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, certainly that had a big and long-term impact on our relationship, but, you know, I will tell you that even through the worst of it, uh, worst of our differences on Russia, we've continued to work together on all the other issues. Uh, so we continue to produce our intel authorization bills every year. We get them passed out of the House, which is something the Senate has not been able to do. Um, and we have not let our differences, as significant as they are, uh, interfere with the other really important work of the committee. We're getting a little short on time, but uh, there's a lot of talk, of course, about impeachment and what happens next. You know, the Mueller report is out. He has spoken. Should he testify? Should he testify? And, and do you as chair feel like you can't really take a position yet on whether or not there should be an impeachment inquiry? Well, first of all, he should testify. And 
you know, I'm grateful for the work that he did, uh, and I think he is a dedicated public servant. But I don't think it's sufficient uh, merely to go out for 10 minutes, say I'm not going to answer questions, and thank you, goodbye. Um, I can understand his reluctance. Uh, certainly he's endured a lot of uh, slings and arrows for the last two years, mostly coming from the White House. But I think he has one more duty to perform, and that is to answer questions about his work um, and not just what's in the report. Uh, there are a lot of questions he can answer outside the report that are of perhaps even greater significance. Um, so I think that he should come uh, and testify, and we're going to continue to work to make that happen. In terms of the impeachment issue, it's a obviously a highly consequential decision for the country, um, and I'm not there yet, although the president seems determined to push me in that direction. I do worry about the message that is sent by not impeaching a president whose conduct is so um, clearly unfit for office. At the same time, I worry about what happens if you go through a trial and he's acquitted, as would likely be the case, that you then have an adjudication that that conduct is not impeachable. Uh, you have a precedent then that that is not an impeachable offense, and I worry about that uh, consequence as well. I guess as a prosecutor, though, like if you had the facts as a U.S. attorney, and even if you were worried about the jury or the judge, you would probably still press that case. Like, I, I think for people who support impeachment, they might see this as, well, Democrats are, are looking at the political angles of this, of whether, you know, what message that sends right from a legal perspective, but also what it would say before the 2020 election. I mean, should that be a consideration, really, if, if you think the facts are there? You know, actually, as a prosecutor, um, and Mueller makes this point in his report, you don't bring a case if you're not confident you can prove beyond a reasonable doubt to the jury uh, that the crime has been committed. And you, you, as a prosecutor, you often have circumstances where you think someone is guilty uh, and you think they should pay for what they've done, but you can't prove it. And then, therefore, you don't indict them simply to put them through that trial. Um, it's not a perfect analogy, though. Uh, there are good arguments to be made for an impeachment, even if it were going to result in acquittal. Um, I don't think it's political to consider the fact that you're not likely to be able to prove to the Senate, uh, to the satisfaction of, uh, of um, the Senate, uh, and have him removed from office. And then you have to ask, is it worth putting the country through that if you know the result uh, is, is pretty well concluded in advance? All right, we'll have to leave it there. Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Special thanks this week to our friends at KQED Newsroom and Media One for hosting us for the conversation with Congressman Schiff. Our producer is Guy Marzarati, our engineer Seal Muller. Our leadership team includes Vinnie Tong, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. That's a wrap for this week's Political Breakdown from KQED. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
Hi there, I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. 